Let's pray together. Lord, teach us to wait on you, not on changing circumstances, not on other people, not on ourselves. Teach us to wait on you, trusting that your word is true and faithful when it says that we can cast our burdens on you because you care for us. When your word says that you will lift us up in due time. Help us now, Lord, hear your word. Help me to explain it clearly as it should be. And I pray that every person here would find a themselves receptive to what you have to say. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It is so good to be back from Texas. I love Texas. I was born in Texas. I was in a little town called Snyder, Texas. How many of you have ever been to Snyder? Seriously? Unbelievable. Okay. Uh, Snyder is a town of 12,000, halfway between Midland and Lubbock, and I know that didn't help most of you. But I just had the most wonderful time for two reasons. One, when I got there, I found out that they had made a reservation, but they had failed to hold the reservation at my hotel room. And I had an episode at the counter worthy of a sitcom. Because the young man who was doing his best looked for the reservation, said, there's nothing here for you. And I said, well, here's the confirmation number, and it's prepaid. And he said, that very well may be, but there's no room for you. All the beds are taken. And I said, well, that's, this is really interesting. What shall we do? And he went tip-tapping away. And I hate to stand over people while they're doing that kind of work. I hate for people to do that to me. So I sat down in front of the desk for about five minutes. And he looked up and said, uh, were you going to call somebody? And I said, no, I wasn't. Were you going to call somebody? And he said, well, no, I could call my manager, but she's sleeping. And I said, well, I'm pretty sure the only person I know in this town is sleeping too. What shall we do? And that's how I ended up at the Best Western. And I just had the most amazing time. Car rentals are hard to come by since COVID apparently as well. They gave me a black convertible Mustang, <laughs> which I thought was pretty cool until I was reminded that in West Texas in the oil patch, everyone drives the biggest pickup made by every manufacturer. But in a little church called Calvary Baptist Church in Snyder, Texas, it's not a large church, but it's a faithful church, that little band of brothers and sisters out there next year is on track, this year rather, is on track to give $350,000 away to foreign missions. In the event that we had with them where I, I just opened up the Bible to teach them something I shared with you a few weeks ago, three men trusted Christ as Savior. And it just, wherever you go, wherever you find Jesus' people, you will always find Jesus himself doing good work. And I'm just so grateful that I can be gone for a little while. The week before, I was in Kansas City on, uh, to be part of a ceremony honoring my parents for 50 years of missionary service. You know how humbling it is to write a book about resilience when your parents are celebrating 50 years of missionary service? I'm writing about it. They're living it. That's kind of their, their, their daft son is uh, writing books about what they're doing every day of their lives. Everywhere I go, I find Jesus at work. I know the news would make you think the world's about to collapse and that you should probably, you know, be grateful to be dead by Tuesday. <laughs> it's not true. Jesus is alive. Jesus is doing what Jesus always does. And you have a wonderful family of faith 
all around the country and through our missionaries I know all around the world. However, this is home. And if I could speak like a Texan for a moment, I love y'all. And I am so glad to be home and know that the work of Jesus continues here, there, and everywhere. Whether I'm involved or not, whether I'm on site or not, Jesus is doing what Jesus always does. And we get to do this together. Don't have a have-to sense about church. That's true as well. Jesus told us to gather for worship. He told us to come together and serve Him together and, be, and baptize people and to take communion together. We absolutely have to, but more than that, we get to. This is a privilege. This is a joy. This is the life that God has given us. And I'm so glad that you're here, especially if you're here for the first time. And if you're here for the first time and a little bit nervous about it or for the first time in a long time because of the pandemic, if you're still a little bit anxious about being in church or you're kind of weirded out because it's your first time in church in a long time, maybe even the first time ever, all I want to do is talk to you about Jesus because he's the only one worth really remembering of all of us. If you can get a picture of who Jesus is and you can put your trust in him, the time you spend here this morning will be worth it and worth it forever. So let's get started, shall we? We've been talking about the family table. That's just a word picture, but it's a word picture that a friend of mine invented after looking carefully through the Bible. What is not invented is that God refers to people who love Him and trust Him for the forgiveness of their sins as a family. We're not an organization, we're not a 501c3 style organization that has humanly directed motives and causes. No, according to the Word of God, the Bible, what we are is a family. And just like every other family, the family grows when people actually trust Jesus as their Savior. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that people who don't believe Him, don't trust in Him, when they do, they are born again. Jesus' words, not mine. Those words have become a punchline in our culture. But when people make fun of the born-again phrase, they're actually mocking something Jesus himself said. And it's very important. Because when you trust Jesus as your Savior, when you turn away from your sin and put him in charge of your life, you're not just reformed or remade or improved. It's not you 2.0. According to Jesus, you have a whole new life. You have eternal life. You have a life that is not your own. You don't belong to yourself anymore. The life that you have, which will go on forever, hence the word eternal, is not yours. It will go on forever because it is the life of Jesus himself. And when people move out of that spiritual death where God is unknown and unattended and they're born into the family of God, they're babies. And babies create great joy in a family, but babies need a lot of attention and a lot of care from others who are farther along in life to help them grow up and grow up into children. And by all accounts... Pastor Jim did a spectacular job last week talking to you about what it looks like to be a child in the family of God and sit at the table in the role of a little child. If little children whose primary characteristic is that they are self-centered, have you ever noticed? Children are absolutely wonderful, but if you want to be reminded of true human nature, go to a preschool class. Ask to see the two-year-olds. Everybody talks about the terrible 
twos, but the three-year-olds are much worse because a three-year-old is just a two-year-old with one year on the job. They've got one year's worth of experience of being the way they are. And everything in raising a little child is to develop in that child empathy and thought toward other people. According to child developmental specialists, real empathy begins to develop around the age of six. Sounds a little late to me. That would explain what preschoolers are like. But generally speaking, around the age of six, a normally developing human being starts to think a little less of themselves and start to think about the impact their, their words and their actions are having on others. Moms and dads who are raising little children continually are asking them, how would you feel if she did that to you? And that had never occurred to him, so he has to think about it. How would I feel? I don't think I would feel good at all if she set all my toys on fire. Well, no, you wouldn't. And she doesn't because that's what you did to her. And it's a long journey raising children to the chair we're looking at now, which is young adulthood. And young adulthood, this category straight out of the Bible, I'm going to read it to you in a moment. Young adulthood is a thrilling moment because young adults, spiritually speaking, just as in the physical world, move from being consumers to being contributors. Babies and children, for the most part, are those who consume. And that's good. It's a joy. It's a privilege. As much as it cost me back in the day, I was grateful to go to the grocery store and spend $900 on things like diapers and formula because I was elated to have a son at home. And I always thought it was a joy to be able to strain the family finances the way we were because we have another human life in the home. We've prayed for this. We've wanted this. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being a spiritual baby and being a spiritual child, the only tragedy is when you stop developing spiritually and you get stuck and you always act like a baby or you always act like a child. The joy of the young adult here is that for the first time in the family's life, the young adult, spiritually speaking, is contributing. That's the season I'm in now. One of my sons has begun his career. He's far from home. The other son... He's 21 years old, and he will occasionally say things like, I made dinner. And I say, you did? I don't know how to do that. You made dinner? And I find out that he went to the grocery store, and he picked a cut of meat, and he bought vegetables and oil and seasonings, and he seasoned the meat, and he worked the grill, and he laid out the spread for his mother and I. Amazing. Never saw that coming when he was five years old. <laughs> now he's a grown man and he's contributing. And occasionally he's taken me out for a meal. And on my birthday, he's giving me gifts. What's happening here? He is contributing. Listen to the Apostle John describe who young adults are. Look with me in 1 John, please, chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 is where I am in my Bible. This should appear on the screen. I want you to hear this, please. 1 John chapter 2. John said, in 1 John chapter 2, the second half of verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. 
This is who young adults are. This isn't an expository sermon through 1 John, so let me just orient you to the book. John is giving ways of knowing that you're actually a Christian, and he addresses the entire spiritual family in this letter by talking about little children and young men and fathers. There's three seasons of spiritual development right there. Those who are new in Christ, those who are in the young adult chair, and those who are spiritual parents to others. And to the young adults, John says, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. What that means is that spiritual learning has been demonstrated by spiritual experience. These are not little children anymore who need to be taught the basics of God's word. They are not uninformed about who God is. They have taken his word into their lives with the result that it has made them strong. They have entered into spiritual conflict with the evil one and they have emerged victorious. This has happened because the word of God abides in them. When you're a spiritual child and someone tells you something from the Word of God that contradicts your previous beliefs, you're very likely to yeah but what the Bible says. Have you ever had this conversation? I had a man not far from here many years ago tell me that his adulterous relationship was which was about to destroy his entire family certainly had to be part of God's will because surely his heavenly Father wanted him to be happy. And he said it with absolute conviction. And he knew the Bible better than that. And we opened the Bible and reviewed what the Bible said about that. At that season in his life, he had wedged himself back into the child chair. The word of God was not abiding in him. In other words, the word of God was not making itself at home in his life. He was resisting and conforming the word of God to himself, to what he wanted. That's childlikeness in the case of spiritual young adults. They've learned through actual experience. They've seen it play out in their actual life. It's not just theory anymore. It's something that they've seen come true in actual practical life. In other words, they have faced temptations and trials and they have won. They have overcome the evil one. They're not perfect and they're not sinless. Only Jesus is perfect and sinless on this earth. We will achieve glorification. We will be only like Him when He finishes our salvation and takes us to glory. But the young adult more and more is characterized by getting stronger and stronger, letting the Word of God work in him. He's not resisting, fighting, editing, yeah, butting the word of God. It is making itself at home in his life. It is strengthening him spiritually. And when he is tempted and when he is tried, he wins. What are spiritual young adults like? Let me give you three characteristics. Number one, and by far the most important, spiritual young adults are focused on other people. They are focused on others. Philippians 2, verse 19, here's the setting. Paul's in prison. He's writing to a very unique and special church, the only church that has habitually partnered with Paul financially. Paul is an extraordinary missionary. He wrote most of the books in the New Testament. 
He preached the gospel where Christ was not known. He was always extending himself to new frontiers, facing new dangers, often suffering at the cost of his freedom, often surrendering his health and a beating. And only one church decided to take part, according to Paul, and support him financially to keep him on the road and keep him going. They were the Philippians. And Paul has received a report about how well they are doing from Paul's trusted associate, a young preacher named Timothy. And I want you to hear what Paul says about Timothy. Timothy is an excellent example of a spiritual young adult edging into parenthood. Paul said, now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may also be encouraged when I hear news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interest. Don't miss this. All seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know this, his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. This is quite a statement. This to me is one of the most surprising verses in the New Testament because there was no one on earth that better pictured, followed, and obeyed Jesus than the Apostle Paul. Paul had the confidence to say, you follow me the way I follow Christ. You remember what I taught you. You consider the life that I've shown you. Think back on my habits. Think of how I work. Think of how I talk. Remember how I prayed. Remember how I preached. Look through my whole life and do just exactly what you see me doing and you'll be fine. You wish you had Paul for a pastor and a preacher, not me. He's extraordinary. He stands alone, even in the history of the apostles, quite on his own, as the best Christian perhaps that has ever lived. And Paul said, when I look at all the people I've invested in, all the people I've discipled, all the people I've loved and taught, there's really only one guy I could send to you. His name's Timothy. Look back in your Bible. What makes the difference between Paul, between Timothy, and everybody else Paul could think of that worked with him in ministry? All the others were thinking of what? Themselves. Timothy alone thought about the interests of the Philippians. That is what makes a spiritual young adult. Paul says nobody cares about others and he also says they're not concerned with the things of Christ. Which is it? To be concerned for Christ is to be concerned for others. If you really love and follow Jesus, you will continually find yourself in contact with other people who need to hear about him, who, with other people who have needs and wounds and trauma and sin and loss that life and sin have dealt them that need to be ministered to in the name of Jesus. And at that moment, you're going to have a difficult decision do I keep the focus on myself where I like it? Or do I move and follow the lead of Jesus and think about the needs of this needy person who is in front of me? My pastor, I wish you could have met him, those of you who didn't. My pastor, Bruce Melton, was a great man and a funny one. And he always said, I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about. 
That quick one-liner portrays the attitude of the whole world before they come to Christ, and it portrays the life of the spiritual infant and the spiritual child until they grow up enough to orient themselves toward others. A life oriented toward others, God and people, is the chief mark of spiritual maturity. If you want to decide and determine whether you are actually still in the child chair or perhaps in the baby chair or you are a spiritual young adult, the answer will always be found in where the focus of your life is. Is the focus of your life on God and other people or are you primarily, honestly interested primarily in your own concerns? And it's hard not to be interested in yourself. You're with yourself all day. You think and feel what you think and feel. This is so true that it's been shown in countless ways. Godless psychology shows us how interested people are in themselves. My favorite proof is something called the spotlight effect. The spotlight effect is, for instance, you have a little stain on your your shirt and you go awkwardly through the whole day just knowing that the world is looking at you and thinking what a slob you are. Have you ever done this? Me too. Do you know that they've done studies to show the whole world that we should really all relax? Psychologists call it the spotlight effect. And that is, we all feel, we all go through life as if the spotlight were on us. And that's why we're so embarrassed and mortified that our shirt's a little bit of a mess. But nobody notices and nobody cares. Can you guess why? Because they're thinking about themselves and their own shirt. They're so into their hairdo and their hairstyle and was I noticed and am I going to be appreciated? Is someone finally going to realize the greatness that they have right in front of them? Namely, me, is somebody going to recognize who I am and help or praise? The whole world is going around, billions and billions of people, each in their own spotlight, only interested in themselves. It's hard for Jesus to find reliable help. It's hard for Jesus to find real disciples because it, it makes it happens only when you move the focus from yourself to others. To God first and then to others. You may not have noticed because they've been there so long, but you walk through the doors of this church that are inscribed with the great commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to obey a second commandment which Jesus said is like it. To love others as yourself. Those commandments are on the front doors of our church for a reason. That's the whole spiritual life. To love God supremely and to love others the way you love yourself, that is the essence of the real, mature spiritual life. What else is going on in the lives of young adults? Well, number two, young adults are vulnerable to pride or discouragement depending on how others respond to their ministry. In other words, when young adults make the spiritually mature decision to say to themselves, okay, enough about me, let's make it about you. I'm going to orient my schedule, my budget, my time, and my attitude to focus on God and focus on other people. That's what I'm going to do. The minute they do that, when they become that vulnerable, when they become that self-sacrificial, they're immediately endangered to their own pride if things go well, or their own discouragement for the same reason because of their pride, depending entirely on how people respond to the service that they're given. 
Timothy is the proof of this. Timothy himself, of whom Paul said there's absolutely no one like him. There's nobody that I have in the world that will actually care about you. All of my other associates, they're self-interested. The only one I can think to send you to meet you in your time of need is Timothy. I hope to send him to you soon. Even Timothy struggled with this because of the letter. I know that because of the letters Paul wrote him. 2 Timothy 1 verse 4, Paul says, Remembering your tears... I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. That's a small thing, but when Paul thought of Timothy, Paul is always reminded of Timothy crying. I remember your tears and I don't disdain them. I don't think you're less of a man. I remember your tears and I want to go be with you again. I want to encourage you. I want to strengthen you. I want to be with you so that I can be filled up with joy again. Not only that, in 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul said to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. Timothy was in an age-oriented culture. Most cultures in the world are oriented toward age. America is very unique that if you're much past 30 years old, you don't matter anymore. Much of the world, most of the world, sees it the opposite. When I was a young seminary student, many of my classmates were older students from Korea. And they absolutely marveled at the opportunities I was given in my mid-20s. They were in their early 30s and still waiting for chances because in their church culture, they needed to pay some dues first. Come back with a little silver in your hair. Show me that your back is a little bent by suffering and effort, and then we'll start listening to you. In the meantime, sit down, kid. That's Timothy's culture. So Paul says to him, 1 Timothy 4, let no one despise your youth. Instead, you should be an example to the believers. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you. Now, why do you think Paul told Timothy, don't let them look down on you? You be an example to all of them, including your critics, and whatever you do, don't neglect your gift. Why would he have to say that? Because Timothy was thinking about taking his ball and going home and let these ingrates figure it out. You kidding me? You know what I've been through with the Apostle Paul? Do you know what he's taught me? Do you know how privileged I am to sit with him? Paul trusts me like he trusts no one else on earth. He's chosen me as his right-hand man, as his most trusted associate. And you're going to tell me I'm wrong? Paul was in Ephesus to correct false teaching and to put properly appointed church elders, pastors, spiritual leaders in a church. Pretty simple task. Stand up to evil, correct all the false teaching, find and train qualified people and put them in charge. That's all Timothy had to do. Pretty big, char- pretty big charge. No wonder he was crying his way through it. No wonder Paul had to tell Timothy, Timothy, don't let them talk down to you. Don't let them look down on you because you're young. Live better. Be more exemplary. Make sure you read the Bible to them. Make sure that you exhort them, meaning you correct them and encourage them. You show them the way. Do it with fearlessness. Jesus is right. His word is trustworthy. Don't be afraid. And whatever you do, don't neglect the gift that is in you. 
Why? Because when you're a spiritual young adult and people respond well and tell you you're amazing, you're likely to believe it. I'm going to speak a little bit as a pastor. Because I've been pastoring for 32 years. I was born into a missionary's home. My grandpa was literally a hell-raising, violent, alcoholic man who was saved by the grace of Jesus and who began preaching the gospel as soon as he heard it. I'm telling you the, those, that little bit of my life to tell you I've been around ministers and ministry literally my entire life. When I was in the womb, I was hearing preachers and missionaries talk. I've been hearing them talk my entire life. And when you're in ministry, you learn about people who are in ministry, both vocational people who happen to be on a church payroll and the vast majority of Christian ministers such as yourselves who are not appointed and your name is not on the back of a bulletin. You don't have a vocational calling, but you serve Christ. When people serve Christ, there is a certain tendency that is inevitable and human to put your best effort in the name of Jesus out there and then just kind of hang around hoping people appreciate it. There's a certain kind of preacher who loves to hang out in the lobby hoping that people will come by and tell him, good job. You did a really good job. We really love it when it's your turn to preach. We really love it when you open up the scriptures. Really? What do you think the most helpful part was? Were you really helped? And they start asking questions, and the whole dynamic is, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Tell me I'm okay. Tell me I did good. That's pride. The other is discouragement. You do your best to serve other people. You counsel, you love, you serve, you give. You decorate your car. You buy $500 worth of candy. Your car is amazing. Nobody says a thing about it at the church trunk or treat. And you're so wounded because you work 55 hours a week as it is. You spend money you don't have to serve these rotten kids. <laughs> and then nobody says squat. And you go, well, you know, if this is the way it's going to be, maybe I'll just go to a church that appreciates someone like me. And you would never enunciate it like that. But that's in your heart. That's the danger of young adulthood. Remember, it is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He comes first. If you love Him and gratefully serve Him, whether people praise you or pound you won't make any difference because you did it as unto the Lord. And if you're resisted and rejected and criticized, you will bear it with the grace of Jesus, who was himself, you may have noticed, criticized and rejected. You remember how it ended for Jesus? They killed him. Any sermon I can walk away from went better than most sermons that Jesus preached. Every time Paul was done preaching, they generally threw him out of the synagogue and tried to kill him on the spot. I go to Mod Pizza. It's a pretty good life. So it will be with you when you move from childlikeness into young adulthood. A third thing, and I'm nearly done. Young adults, spiritually speaking, are idealistic, which can make them naive about serving others and dogmatic about how the church should be. Naive. Young member of our staff years ago, Rachel Thomas, who we miss dearly, 
still part of the church, but what a great part of the staff she was for so many years, sent me a meme that portrays this, said people enter ministry to change the world and are surprised to learn they can't change the church bulletin. (laughs) If you've ever worked in a church office, you know what that's like. Did you hear the amen from the staff? People that are filled with the strength of Jesus have high ideals for the way the church should be. But they're also naive about the way people are. Jesus never was. At the end of John 2, Jesus' ministry is being extraordinarily well received, but it says Jesus did not entrust himself to people because he knew what was in their heart. Jesus heard the praise, he heard the accolades and remembers that the crowd that says Hosanna one day can say crucify him the next. He kept his focus and his faith placed in his heavenly father. So please, young adults physically and young adults spiritually, keep your idealism. Your idealism may help you change the church back to the word of God the way it should have always been. Your idealism may help you defeat in the name of Jesus a great evil in the world. Don't lose the idealism, but don't be discouraged when the system and the sin resist you by me and crush you because you're so naive about the way people actually are. So how do we help people grow into this stage? We train them to serve. That's what young adults need. If you're old enough to be in this service, if you want to mature spiritually, you need to find a place and a people to serve. Simple as that. And I know half the audience is turning this sermon off because you're introverts. Let me talk about that for a second. Because when a pastor speaks of serving, did you hear the introverts laugh? When a pastor speaks about serving and you notice that the pastor is an extreme outlier extrovert such as I am, serving people, introverts think to themselves, people wear me out. I'm not sure I like people. How am I to serve them if they wear me out? Because that's the identifying characteristic of an introvert. People drain them. I can work 14 hours, be exhausted, see a whole bunch of new people I haven't met and go, oh boy, new people. Hey, friends, how are you? Who's the psycho who let this guy in here? What's he selling? That's me. You don't have to be like me. I'm the only extrovert in my family. And by God's grace, all three people in my family serve and serve well. Here's your role, introverts. Introverts will have a much smaller circle, but those relationships will go much deeper. You may not be the person who draws the crowd and is comfortable in the crowd, but Jesus will send you to quiet people like yourself, to needy people that know that since you don't always have to talk and be the center of attention, you might be the most trustworthy person in the room, and it is is you that they can tell their whole heart to. When I say serve, I don't necessarily mean under the lights and with a mic. Very few people will do that. The work of this church is done week by week. 97% of the work done by this church are people who have never been and never will be on a church payroll. 
This week, several people trusted Christ and several other people found hope in really dire, difficult circumstances. And I just found out about it because other people were representing Jesus to them, not bothering to tell me or check in with me because they don't have to. They're out there being the body of Christ and representing Him well with their gifts. What we do for young adults, introverted and extroverted, is train them to serve. Listen to Jesus. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Anyone who bears the name of Christ will put himself in the position of the servant because that's what Jesus did. If you're not serving other people, you're not really serving Jesus or at least not serving Him as well as you think you are. If your Christianity is just the Lord and me, you've got half of Christianity. You've got a deformed idea of the Christian faith because the heart and the life of Christ is always going from his brothers and sisters brought into the family of God by his own death. His life is going out through him. Listen to Paul explain it to the church at Ephesus. Speaking of Jesus. It says, and he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now what Paul is telling you here is that Jesus has chosen to give as a gift to his church certain prominent leaders, apostles and prophets known in the days of Paul, where Paul himself was an apostle, There were some prophets who spoke both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There were some evangelists like my friend Ray Comfort. There are also as gifts to the church from Jesus some pastors and teachers. That's what I'm trying to do at the moment. But those people gifted by Jesus to his church were given to the church for a reason. Verse 12, for the training of the saints, what's it say? In the work of ministry. So you tell me, who does the work of the ministry? The saints. Thank you, Josh. You're dead on. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers were given by Jesus to the body to train everybody else to do the work of ministry. I'm in Ephesians chapter 4. Until to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. That's spiritual maturity. Hear this. For all of us to grow up to the fullness of our potential of Christ, it takes all of us. If we're all going to mature, we're all going to have to be serving a lost world and the body of Christ, which was gifted and saved by Christ. In other words, church, we need you. If you want to grow up, take a bold Christ-like decision to begin serving others. Make the move from childlikeness into young adulthood by saying, by the grace of God, because I love God, I will serve and love other people. It may be two or three, or it may be thousands of people. I don't know. I'm going to leave that up to Jesus. I'm going to take my little world and I'm going to focus it on others. All of you. 
Single moms, homeschooling parents whose world is reduced most every day to a literal kitchen table and most of your world is taken up by just a few other people. Pour your whole life there. You'll change eternity and you'll change their lives by giving yourself in loving, faithful, kind service to them. Others of you have been called, I know it, to sit as some of you do already with brokenhearted people who have been absolutely wrecked by the sin and evil of other people who have warped themselves through their own selfishness. Your role is to sit there and listen and dry the tears and hear the stories and then when they're done talking and they've given you all their troubles to point them to Jesus and then you watch Jesus step in and change in a matter of hours, a whole life, there's absolutely nothing like it. You have to get in on this. You know, neither of the, none of those things that you've just mentioned appeal to me. Believe me, in this broken, lost world, Jesus has work for you to do. If you don't know what it is yet, ask him. You know Jesus doesn't play hard to get. You say to the Lord, Lord, with all my heart, with the time I have left, I want to serve you. He won't put you off. He won't say, well, I guess. Are you qualified? Oh, he is your qualification. You take Jesus with you and you'll see the work of God done through you. Some people love junior high school students. My wife does. I, I can't begin to fathom it. <laughs> I'm literally, because of the way I grew up, I'm literally so much more at ease in a convalescent hospital than I am in a seventh grade classroom. They don't like me. On site, I can tell these kids aren't getting it. We are probably not going to get along. I'm going to try and be as loving as I can, but they're going through things that I hated when I was their age. And even now at my age, I'm often powerless at knowing how to help them. But there are some who understand that season of life, whether it's two years old or 13 years old or 89 years old and facing the end of life, Jesus has in his body someone apt for every need in every situation. The reason the work isn't getting done is because not enough people are listening to Jesus and choosing to move the focus from themselves to others. Let me close with this. Let me suggest three shifts to create a culture of Christ-like service at Crosspoint. These are three attitudes. If these are embraced, this church will flourish and do the work of the world, do the work in the world like Jesus wants us to be. I'm not talking to you about exploding in growth numerically. That might happen, but frankly, that's up to Jesus. I'm talking about the people that Jesus has already faithfully placed here when we all collectively decide and take a step forward to center our lives first on God and then because we love Him in service to others, extraordinary things will happen. Here's the first shift. You need to say, God wants me to serve, so I will. I can read in the New Testament that my Savior came not to be served by other people, but to serve them. He is the king of the universe and the creator of all things who sustains the universe by the word of his power, but he adopted the position, the posture, and ultimately the death of a worthless slave. So if he's like that, I'm not going to get on my high horse. I'm going to dedicate myself to serving at least a few other people. God wants me to do it, so I will. Secondly, 
spiritual young adults and parents result when two phrases are often heard. The first is, come with me. And the other is, can I come with you? Come with me is the Paul that sees the young Timothy and says, hey, come with me. Let's run an errand. Come with me. What are we doing? just, Just come with me. I'm going to go help somebody. I'm going to go talk to somebody. I'd like you to be with me. Everybody who's trained one of their kids to do anything worthwhile has continually been inviting that child to come along with them. Let's go to the store. Come into the kitchen. Come into the workshop. Go out to the field. Wherever you want to do that that work and that training and that development, you always have to have your young learner with you. When God begins to develop a young adult, that young adult is saying something similar. The young adult is saying, can I come with you? 32 years in pastoral ministry, and I can always tell when God is developing and calling new pastors into the fray because young men and women who want to serve Christ are always hanging around the church office, always talking to me and other spiritual workers in the church saying, hey, can I come? Wait a second. You want to come to the ER with me? It's pretty brutal. Someone's dying. Yeah, I know. I won't say anything. Can I just, can I just go? I'll wait in the lobby if I have to. Ah. Lord, you've given this person a heart. Someone is needy and they want to go. They're not saying, ah, too bad. Oh, I hope somebody helps them. They're saying, can I come with you? This is how Jesus developed people. Look at Mark 3, verse 14. This is when Jesus developed the apostles. Listen, and I'm done. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and send them out to preach. I've asked this question of pastoral audiences. When I talk to other pastors, I've asked this question literally across the nation. What are the two things that Jesus called the apostles to do? Just read it right off the screen with me. What did Jesus call the apostles to do? To be with him and to send them out to preach. You did better than 80% of the audiences of pastors I've shown this verse to. Because I didn't see this verse for a long time until another pastor showed it to me. The preachers in the room say, Jesus called the apostles to send them out to preach. And they entirely missed the first part. The first reason Jesus calls anybody to himself is so that he can be with them. And after a time with him, then he sends them out. Someone observed that we've reversed the order of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was with the Father in fellowship that nobody knew and nobody could see. That's why one day the disciples said to the Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. They had some sense of the private life that he had with his father. They wanted in on it. Then after Jesus had been with the father, he went to the disciples. After spending time with the disciples, then he went out to the crowd and he saw the power of God. What do we do? We run to the crowd. We get our head kicked in and we retreat and talk to the disciples and say, well, that didn't work. That was terrible. They hated it. Nothing good is happening here. What do we do? And we make another plan and we go back out to the crowd, rinse and repeat. We get our head kicked in again. We return and then in desperation, we go to the father and say, Lord, it's terrible out here. Help us. We've reversed the order. You spend time with Jesus and Jesus will send you out. Young adults are committed to being with and then going out. 
And thirdly and finally, young adults say, I will never stop serving my good God because people can be so bad. See, the reason a lot of people move out of church, give up on church, hop from church to church, or simply sit in church, never serving in church, is because people can be awful. I don't know if you've noticed. Pastors too. Pastors are either, a friend of mine in the ministry said, pastors are either the best or the worst people you'll ever meet. And it's true. But people who have moved into adulthood say to the Lord, you're good, so I'm going to keep serving them even when they're bad. Here's proof, Colossians 4, verse 17. As far as I can tell, Paul never knew the church at Colossae before he wrote them this letter. Another man had started this church. Paul had never been acquainted with them, but he knew of their reputation. He knew some of the people working there. So he sends them this letter to be read publicly to the whole church. And right at the end of the letter, he says this, and tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. You know, that, that's kind of it. What do you, what's the point? Imagine being Archippus. You're sitting there in a church of 30 people, they say, guys, the Apostle Paul wrote us. Come here, let's listen. And he reads this amazing letter about the supremacy of Jesus. And right then at the end, in front of God and everybody, Paul says to you, Archippus, tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry of you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. In other words, Archippus, make sure you finish. Tell that young man not to quit. I would feel a little called out myself. This church is filled with people like Archippus. There are no Apostles Paul among us. There may not even be many Timothys. But we can all be Archippus. Names of no particular importance, but saved and gifted by Christ, the same as Paul and the same as Timothy, who are determined out of love for Jesus to give themselves in love to Christ and because we love Christ, to give ourselves in service to others. All I'm trying to tell you is this, to grow yourself up, make your life about others. That's what it takes to move from childishness into adulthood. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you take the next minute and help your family make decisions about their lives? Christian, can I just talk to you for a second? Would you say with an open calendar that your life is about others? Can you point to outflows of time and service and energy and love and even money that shows that your focus is not on you? That's what it means to be a spiritual young adult. And I'm convinced that there are some of you who are here and some of you are brand new to our church, but God is actually bringing you in and he's adding you to this body and he has work for you to do. And I'm just asking you right now to surrender to him. Just to say, Jesus, I believed you for salvation. Now I'm going to believe you for service. I've been tired. I've been wounded. I've been bitter. I've been disenchanted. I've been exhausted. But I'm going to ask you to heal me up, give me energy, give me vision, and I'm going to get back out there. I'm going to be with you. And because I'm with you, I'm going to go to them.
You don't need to tell me a thing, Christian. I'm just asking you if the Lord has been working in your life to that point to tell him, surrender to him in not salvation, but service. And if you're new to church, if you're one of those who's here for the first time or the first time in a long time, I've been talking primarily to Christians, but you should know that Jesus loved you with an eternal love. He took your sin upon himself as if he were guilty so that he could forgive you and call you innocent and righteous. And what you need to do is the same thing they did, just in a different way. You need to give up on yourself. Stop centering yourself and tell Jesus you're sorry for your sin and you're going to ask him to save you. When you do, he will. It's the hardest move in the world because it requires the death of your pride so that you can have the life of Jesus instead. But when you give up on yourself and say, Jesus, please save me. Save me from my sins. He will. He does. Jesus, I pray that you would do just that. There's a single person here who needs to trust you as Savior, that they would, and they'd do it right now, in this moment. They would tell you that they're sorry for their sins. They understand the guilt. They understand the distance between you and them, between them and God. But they are asking you now to forgive them and save them. And for those of, you, of us, Lord, who already know you and already love you because you loved us so much first, Lord, raise up servants all across this church. Raise up people who would be just like your son Jesus in their determination to set themselves aside and serve others. I pray that in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, in your bulletin, you're going to find a card. If you have that card and this morning you have a spiritual question or you're making a spiritual decision, either to trust Jesus as Savior or move toward service. Find that card, fill it out quickly before you reach the back doors and just give it to one of our ushers, put it in a basket on the way out. This whole week, this pastoral staff, this whole church family, everyone that's serving, and there are many of us, there's probably at least 250 people in this church family that are serving others in the name of Jesus. Many more that come to this church but at least a couple hundred who can name the people they serve. Talk about what they do to serve people and to serve Jesus. We're all here for you. If you'd like to connect with us, please let us know. I am going to run to that building right over there on the ground floor is a little room we call the living room. If you're new to the church, I'd be grateful for a minute to say hello. I'll even offer you a donut. I'm just that nice of a guy, okay? God bless you folks. Love y'all. See you soon.